Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So as you start to loosen up your own travel restrictions and you're traveling anywhere in the great global village, you can find us on your digital devices because we're a podcast. How cool is that? And we are um, very pleased today in especially uh, given uh, what's going on in the country. Uh, unspeakable, unspeakable conduct uh, by our president in the White House calling out troops on peaceful protesters, protesters who were legitimately exercising their First Amendment rights to peaceably assemble uh, and petition for redress of grievances over police brutality and the murder of African Americans, including, including Mr. Floyd. Uh, it's a sober and somber time in America. And we're welcoming Dr. Davin Phoenix, an associate professor in political science at UC Irvine. He has a PhD in public policy and political science from the University of Michigan. His recent book, The Anger Gap, has been described as a thorough and nuanced analysis of the nexus of race, emotions, and political participation, and a brilliant and timely contribution to the literature. And it goes to the heart of the terrific pain, the anger, the outrage, the protest that has broken out across the United States over the last week in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and, and other senseless violence directed at Black Americans. So it's, it's right on time. But beyond that, we can also argue that the confluence of race, anger, and politics is, 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 is not just an academic issue. And it's not just an issue of what's in the news right now. Let's zoom out to the 10,000 foot view for a moment. Consider this, Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election in no small part because African-American voter turnout was down 7%. In Wisconsin, that fall off in just 10 majority black zip codes around Milwaukee cost 24,000 votes in a state. Trump won by 23,000. Consider this, Joe Biden is only the Democratic uh, nominee uh, because of Jim Clyburn and the will of the black voters of South Carolina and in the Super Tuesday states because Biden tanked in Iowa and New Hampshire, let me tell you, and he was saved by Jim Clyburn. It, I mean, Jim Clyburn was the knight on the horse who saved him. Consider that the African-American vote is the most consistent, reliable voting bloc in the Democratic coalition. And the turnout of black voters for Democrats is make it or break it. And consider that Donald Trump thanked black voters the day after his election for turning out in such low numbers because he saw it as the key to his victory. And now take a look at the 2020 election. The fact that many of us believe that the future of our democracy, the future of our economy, our freedom, perhaps then even the future of the planet hangs in the balance. So it's not going too far to say that as go black American voters, so goes the Democratic Party, so goes America, and so goes the world. With that light background in mind, we can't really think of a more important topic to understand than how and why black voters do or don't channel anger 
and hope and their experiences into political action. So Dr. Phoenix, uh, welcome to Off the Record. We really appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me. I don't think we could talk about anything uh, more relevant or urgent in this moment. So glad to have this conversation. It's true. Um, would you give our listeners uh, a little bit of a sense of, of, of how, how you came to your position, uh, including, I'm, I'm curious about your path towards academia, um, and how, and, and what was it that focused you on uh, your recent book, The Anger Gap? Sure. So my path to academia was not one that was set or fortified in stone from an early age. I entered college thinking I would pursue something in the STEM fields like engineering, but <clears throat> as early as freshman orientation at Christopher Newport University in uh, Newport News, Virginia, go captains. I realized that when I saw myself in the future as a quote unquote adult, <clears throat> I saw myself engaged in civic life or political life in some way. And certainly that throughout schooling to that point, I'd been interested in the history and the civics and social science courses. So I kind of gravitated more towards those courses, political science in particular, for no better reason than, well, political science, it's got politics in the name. It must be relevant to where my interests are. Hmm. So I went down that path and sure enough, I just loved every course I was taking, whether it was along the lines of political theory or American participa participation or you know, comparative politics international organizations such as the UN. I just absorbed it all as a sponge. And it was a couple of professors there that really asked me what I wanted to do with this uh, knowledge I was building, with this curiosity I was acting upon. And I really didn't know. Most of my peers with the major wanted to go into law school. And I felt pretty confident that I didn't have much of an interest in law school. So they talked to me about the, uh, about grad school. And I said, well, what is grad school? <laughs> they said, well, you can you know, get a PhD, right? Kind of get paid to study these things, these things more in depth and uh, perhaps end up in the academy. And I thought, well, you had me. I get paid to study these things more in depth. They put a summer program on my radar, which is really instrumental for getting a lot of um, people of color, particularly from underrepresented groups, interested in pursuing PhDs in political science, the Ralph Bunch Summer Institute. I did that program, it was very transformative for me to be able to discuss not just politics, but kind of the politics and how it interacts with socially marginalized groups. And that was something that I hadn't had that much uh, exposure to in my undergraduate courses. And that really lit the fire for me to pursue questions of the intersection of race and politics uh, in a graduate program. Hmm. Went to the University of Michigan in part because it had such a really great track record of cultivating people that were doing uh, really great work on race and politics. <clears throat> and so that was a really uh, another transformative and long and exhausting process for me. One that made me think really critically about what kinds of impacts I might be able to have and might not be able to have uh, as an academic and ways in which I might have opportunities or constraints to kind of connect the work I was interested in to practical outcomes and to actual communities on the ground. Um, and so my interest in anger and politics and anger and race really stemmed from my interest in thinking through this work I was getting exposed to that says if you want to get people more active in politics, particularly taking on costly actions such as uh, voting or donating or kind of canvassing for preferred candidates and campaigns and even policy changes at the local or broader level, then you need to threaten them with what they stand to lose because threatening people with what they stand to lose is a greater motivator than the kind of dangling of an opportunity or promise of something to gain. And I wanted to push back against that idea. I thought, you know, for people that see, view themselves as on the lower end of the totem pole, 
uh, in society or in politics, if I feel like I have already so little to lose in the first place, is threatening me with more to lose really gonna move the needle for me? I could easily envision marginalized communities having the opposite kind of uh, pattern where you give them a credible promise of something to gain from their action and that might inspire action. So I took that idea uh, and then didn't do much with it for a while. And then when I was kind of struggling to think of what my dissertation project was, I was encouraged to revisit projects like that. And in the time since I revisited that project, I thought, oh, maybe the connective thread here is that I'm arguing people, uh, particularly marginalized people, particularly uh, racial minorities or people of color may not be moved by those threats because those threats are not uh, activating the type of anger that gets people moved into politics. And really that is the origins of this project. I've been working on various facets since probably around 2011 that culminated in the book released uh, this past year. So let me just uh, sort of uh, take you back uh, to the beginning with that as an introduction. This week, Juan, Juan Williams writing in the New York Times said, quote, the black vote now defines American politics. And he said, look, black voters have an, quote, explosive personal investment in defeating Mr. Trump in 2020. Um, and more than 80% of African-Americans say Trump is a racist. So for them, defeating him is the civil rights movement of 2020. Um, uh, Juan has been a, 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 a an important observer of the political scene. But according to what you wrote and according to your work, he's making a leap that from that, that you can move African-Americans from anger and disapproval to political action and voting. Your research and your book really is very illuminating about the leap and how big that that chasm uh, may be. So for our voter, uh, for our for our listeners who are also voters, um, can you uh, explain what is the anger gap? Sure. So I think the Juan Williams passage is a great jumping off point where I would uh, draw a disconnect or a contrast with my work is in linking automatically the anger and the disapproval. Certainly black people uh, predominantly view Donald Trump as racist and certainly there is visceral disapproval. But I found uh, black people are generally very disapproving of Republican presidents and candidates. At the same time, they are significantly less uh, likely than their white counterparts to express anger towards those candidates. And I think that speaks to a divide that's really important if you wanna have a better understanding of black political behavior. Having a great deal of dissatisfaction towards individuals or campaigns or an entire party, uh, feeling that party is a significant threat to your group's well-being as well as your individual well-being, is not the same as being moved to indignation or being livid or being angry about that uh, candidate party regime. And that's one element of the anger gap here, that for African Americans, the anger doesn't necessarily arise because for this group, well, let me start by defining what anger is, right? We can feel a lot of negative emotions, you know, frustration, disappointment, anger, sadness. What differentiates anger amongst those negative emotions is when something happens that violates some kind of norm, some kind of slight or injustice, right? So that's a specific thing we're talking about, right? I'm only angered by something that doesn't go my way when I really 
expected and counted on it going my way and it doesn't. So what's important for us to understand is that when black people are looking at Trump or any other figure that they viewed as an existential threat, they're not necessarily surprised that this person or candidate or regime or party is a threat. There's no norm violation there because the underlying set of expectations of African-Americans, the underlying norm is that this party, this candidate, this individual will be the threat. And so there could be frustration, there could be disappointment, there could be disapproval, but not that indignation, not that anger. Why is that critical to distinguish? Because there's a lot of work from social psychology to political psychology to kind of the classics in humanity. It indicates to us when people are angry, when they are feeling that particular sense of agreement, they are more willing to take up action because you're feeling more impulsive in that moment. You're feeling uh, less risk averse in that moment. I always ask my students when I'm breaking this down, how often have you said, or someone said to you, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I was angry, right? Because in that moment, we're thinking less and acting more. So if you broaden that out, that can be really palpable in politics. So it's important to think African-Americans can be really uh, disapproving, can say without hesitation, this regime, this policy, this actor is racist. But if they don't have the sense that there's a violation there, if they think that's the system working as it normally works, because I'm accustomed to the system producing racist outcomes or racist individuals in power, then they won't have that same anger and that anger won't be expected to move. So that's where I'd really draw contrast with Juan Williams. I agree, black voters are really critical. I agree there is a huge outswell of angst towards Trump, but I would not say that people view this as the defining civil rights movement. I think a lot of people have a great much more resignation about it, uh, not only about Trump, but also about what the status quo looks like with or without Trump. Let me just follow up, so, Matt, Matt, let me just follow up. Oh, go ahead, please. One question. So did black voters buy Trump's argument when he said, what have you got to lose? No, I don't think Trump has had any kind of groundswell of credible connections with black voters. But I do think when we look at the decline in turnout and the kind of surprise for many observers and pundits, we can say, despite the clear evidence of Trump's, from Trump's racist rhetoric throughout the kind of 2016 campaign, you know, there might've been no question in many African-American voters' minds, this person is a threat, this person is a particular threat uh, to undo perhaps many of the gains that have been achieved or to at least kind of perpetuate an unsatisfying racial stasis. I think the difference is, whereas many people thought that would lead to kind of an increased motivation to vote, I think there was a strong pervasive sense of resignation, a sense that even the fact that he's got this far is further evidence to us that the system is simply not set up to advance our actual voices, advance our outcomes. And so you can see that threat and not feel the same kind of level of agency, right, to do something about it. Lacking that sense of agency saps you of that anger that would move you to act, right? It makes you feel like, well, I just gotta kind of engage in self-preservation via other means. So I think it's a really subtle but really critical designation. It's not about um, kind of acquiescing to Trump or seeing the stakes as any lower uh, than any other people see it. It's about that sense of, well, what can I do about that? And what you can do about it, what you can't do about it, really dictates your emotional response to that thing that you don't like. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. We're streaming live over the internet at NH Talk Radio. We are just finishing our first segment of a discussion with Dr. Davin Phoenix, 
the author of an important book called The Anger Gap. Um, it's especially important at this time. Uh, it's critical for Democrats to understand what's going on with black voters. We are going to take a short break and we will be back after this with more off the record. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm joined by my co-host, the very smart Matt Robeson, and we are deep into a discussion with Dr. Davin Phoenix, an associate professor in political science at UC Irvine, about his very important book, The Anger Gap. Matt, I know that I cut you off in the last segment because we had to go to a break, so take it away. Not a problem. So, you know, uh, Davin, reading your book, I was really struck. It, it just jumped out to me, a story that a uh, friend of mine from Capitol Hill, Jamie Harrison, who uh, is one of the rising stars in Democratic politics nationally, he's running for the U.S. Senate in South Carolina against Lindsey Graham, and he's telling this story on the stump you know, he himself is a candidate. He's a young black man, um, and he's going door to door to try and drum up support. Um, and he, he knocks on the door of an older African-American voter. And the way he tells the story, and I don't tell it as well as Jamie, is, you know, he tries to engage with this older voter. And the man says, look, you see this dirt road outside my house? It was a dirt road when Reagan was president. It was a dirt road when Clinton was president. It's a dirt road now. It's going to be a dirt road forever. And his point was, it doesn't make any difference. What I do, there's no point to engaging. It's not going to affect any change. And for Jamie, that poses a real problem in terms of mobilizing the African-American vote, which is key for him and his election. And it's key writ large for Democrats across the country. So before the break, you were talking about expectations and a sense of resignation. Does that, does that connect for you? Is that the kind of dynamic that you're talking about in your research, a sense that it, you can't get as activated by anger because you're resigned to, it's not gonna really make a difference if you engage politically? Absolutely, I think there's two really important points of resonance with that kind of anecdote. Uh, one is, how similar it is to stories that many Black Panthers would tell, including Fred Hampton, who I highlight in the book. In his case, it is a Black community that has a uh, faulty stoplight or something like that. And they keep calling, keep calling, and local government never sends anything out. There's all kinds of accidents. And Fred Hampton talks about, you know, you keep going back and going back and going back, and you're in this, like, cycle of insaneness or insanity. He says insaneness. We say cycle of insanity, right? And so it's important to think about the resonance of that kind of story, right? Black communities, especially if all politics is local, right? Saying we want these things, we're asking for these things, we demand them, and regardless of who's in power, we don't see them. I think that's really important to helping us illustrate this idea of resignation, right? Uh, the players uh, shift, right? The chairs shift, but we're all kind of still in the same boat. And I think that sense of resignation especially as it builds up over time, right, can really keep you from feeling that sense of anger in that moment when people are asking you to act on your frustrations to um, help contribute to a regime change. It's like, well, I've been there before and I'll be there again. And I just don't see the change happening. I think the other important thing 
from this story is to consider how when I'm talking about Black people having, you know, a different set of expectations, lowered or tempered set of expectations, or this pervasive sense of resignation, you know, it's not purely abstract or academic, right? Many Black people in the communities are looking at the lack of change, specifically lack of desired change in their communities, and saying, you know, what is my takeaway from this? What is the lesson I draw from this? That maybe um, the things that parties and mobilizers are telling me matter, maybe they don't matter as much. I think we can see uh, that play out in Minneapolis, right? The epicenter of this unrest, where we're talking about this issue, not just as though it's new, but as though this is something that's like a fire that has just started to burn in Minneapolis, as though Philando Castile wasn't killed in Minneapolis, right? By the same police forces that people have been arguing Minneapolis on the ground had been unaccountable. And so I think when people look at that kind of evidence, right, we took to the streets in 2016, now we're taking to these very same streets four years later. Uh, maybe we've seen changes to the council, the mayor, but we haven't seen actual policy or on the ground action shifts. That contributes to that sense of resignation. And that's really important because even as we see the unrest right now, I would not argue that that easily translates to uh, increased motivation to vote come November, because people can easily say, well, you know, we were, we certainly see things worse under Trump, but we were also uh, taking these same stances against police brutality under Obama, right? And so we're not gonna be satisfied by saying, oh, the answer is just getting Trump out of office. These things remain the same, regardless of the kind of markers of political environments. That's really critically important. So um, in your book, Dr. Phoenix, you talk about uh, how black people feel inhibited from public expressions of anger. And your research shows black voters don't report as much anger, uh, don't translate anger into political action uh, as readily um, as they might into protest, but not as much into other forms of political expression like donations, contributions, voting, and other kinds of of concrete um, uh, political action connected to the system. So is that what we're seeing in the past week that it's channeling into protest and, uh, and, is, and can we expect to see that African-American voters are expressing anger and frustration through protest, but it may not translate into voting or other organizing and activism come November, that it's gonna die, it, that, 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 that the concerns are gonna die with protests over the summer and we're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna see that in the, in the fall? I think it's very possible. I mean, you consider the kind of uh, unrest, the impassioned, exasperated cries for uh, racial justice in the criminal justice system, and we can draw a direct line of connection from the kind of unrest centered in Ferguson in 2014. You can go further than that. Think about the unrest after Trayvon Martin's death in 2012. Uh, go back further, the unrest of the Rodney King verdict in 1992, the unrest in urban cities in the late 60s and 70s, right? There's a common thread here. And I think those are all instructive for how we can contextualize this current moment, whether those were, and many of those were election years, right? <laughs> you know, presidential or midterm election years. Um, and we didn't necessarily see translations of that outpouring of anguish to significant increases in black turnout. And I think that speaks to 
I won't say a disconnect because for many individuals, there is a positive correlation. If you're engaging in protests, you are likely to engage in other electoral forms of participation as well. But collectively, when we see this outpouring of unrest, I've seen a lot of people, I'm sure you all have too, um, people looking at this and saying, this is why November 2020 is so vitally important. Right? I think there's many Black folks for whom that kind of idea simply falls on deaf ears. It's like, well, again, no, we're dealing with core issues that may be amplified by the Trump regime, but are certainly not created by the Trump regime. And further, you know, we can have additional skepticism that a Biden regime will be any more responsive to the kinds of claims for more radical imaginings of racial justice uh, compared to maybe a potentially more progressive candidate could have been in that position. So yeah, there's, I think, plenty of reasonable expectations to be skeptical that this moment is just going to translate to unrest. But I think as we'll have a chance to talk about, none of this is static, right? This is all dynamic. I think there are ways we can discuss in through which the Democratic Party can be responsive to this moment in a way that can, I think, engender something so that I think, trying to think through this, there's a moment when the fires literally and figuratively are going to be put out, right? There's a moment when we look to start, you know, rebuilding and restoring and then when the cameras turn away from these communities and we no longer have the sensationalized images on our screens, we're gonna have these black communities that are left with the continued compounding effects of COVID-19, uh, even more escalated tensions with police violence and trying to get the fallout of these mass arrests, right? And people that are having either their first or yet another major interaction with the carceral state. You take those factors and then you've got people saying, hey, Time to gear up and campaign and donate and canvas and vote. Is the response going to be like, I'm fired up to do that? Or I'm fatigued. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I've seen yet again that maybe things won't change. I think the Democratic Party really needs to understand that's likely going to be the case unless it shifts its strategy and how it responds to this moment. So part of your work really spoke to and filled in some, some intellectual gaps for me on something that's been sort of a personal hobby horse issue for me for a long time that I featured in my own writing, which is that it feels like people mistakenly think that the two parties are sort of mirror images of one another, and they fail to recognize that the Republican Party is relatively far more, not only demographically, racially homogenous, but ideologically homogenous. Um, they really respond to messaging in a very different way from the Democratic Party, which is a coalition of interest groups, uh, racial and demographic mix. Um, and so one of the things that you point out in, in your research is that activating white voters' anger induces more conservative positions on race, which you test through surveys. And so what emerges is this opportunity for Republicans, and we've seen it uh, under Donald Trump, to sort of get a messaging twofer here, that they can invoke themes of patriotism, threat, and particularly, let's face it, racial threat. Uh, and Trump can, on the one hand, activate a sense of pride in his base, a sense of fear of loss aversion. And that can sort of work out really well to turn out white Republican voters. So I've given you a mouthful there, but I was I, I was really fascinated to see those gaps get filled in by your work. Does, it, does, does my read back of your work, does that ring true to you? Does that strike you as right? Is that sort of a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how the dynamics of the two parties play out? I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, I 
I'm gratified that we have that point of convergence in our thinking because that's something that you just articulated that kind of was a, you know, late arriving development in this project. And I really think about the work of folks like uh, Liliana Mason at uh, University of Maryland, who's looked at the kind of partisanship meaning much more, right, than just a set of ideological beliefs and how the partisanship as a meaningful social identity is very critically important for Republicans who look so much more similar to fellow Republicans relative to Democrats. That's a really important point that you make. We can talk about not just along racial lines, but increasingly along religious lines as well. Um, and even in terms of gender, yeah, all kinds of things, right? And so that's really important. I think as I was completing the book, I needed to acknowledge that I was asking the Democratic Party to, what I was asking the Democratic Party to do was a tall order, right? They've got an incredibly diverse set of folks in terms of race, age, education, income, religious affiliation. And the idea that one message is gonna be sufficient to rally and unite this group, I think is a logical fallacy. And I think to your point, we all suffer by viewing the parties as a mirror image. The Republican party can use those rallying messages because of how similar and how closely connected the base is. Why would we expect you know, a young 19-year-old uh, Latino third-generation student in college who identifies as Democrat, right, to have the same rallying cry, right, as a 55-year-old white woman uh, Democrat, right? Obviously, there's some measure of convergence, but they're going to have so many different lenses through which they view the world, so many different lenses through which they view the most important problems and their sense of agency to take care of the problem, that the Democratic Party, by insisting on having some unifying message and insisting on kind of viewing identity politics as some third rail is going to continue to alienate people that are a core component of its base. But at the same time, I do recognize that is difficult. That's a challenge that the Republican Party does not have. And as we're thinking about party politics, how much value is there and kind of practical normative value is there from problematizing the idea that one of our parties in our two party system is so limited and narrow in scope and focus that it is increasingly the party of, uh, you know, older white evangelical men first and then maybe women second, right? That the work of putting together a policy agenda for every other group <laughs> falls on another party. So yeah, I think you're spot on with that. So um, here's an easy question. Uh, yeah, because because uh, because this may this may have an easy answer. You looked at over nine presidential elections. You found that there was only one where anger was associated with more voting more voting for black voters. That was in 1992, and you say anger packs a much stronger mobilizing punch for white Amer for white than black Americans. So if we were to try to get our hands around the size of the gap, how big a gap are we talking about? Sure. So I had to run a couple of numbers for this one, because that's not something I explicitly answer in the book, as I'm sure you've noticed, which is why you asked me here. And so if the only thing we know about the Democrats in our sample, right, is whether they've uh, expressed anger towards the Republican incumbent or candidate that year, if that's all we know, then we, I can see from the data that white Democrats are about 10% more likely to cast that vote when they felt angry towards that Republican figure. Black Democrats, they're not so far off, about like 8% more likely to vote. Uh, when, when all we know about them is that, yes, they said they were angry at some point towards that Republican. Now, here's the differences, right? Those black Democrats are about 
And now we're considering all kinds of things, strength of partisanship, age, other demographics, socioeconomic status, political interests, and other kinds of indicators. Given all those things, Black Democrats are about 8% less likely to express that anger towards, towards those Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. So the gap is probably around that percentage of 8%, probably a little. Uh, once we factor in things, it's gonna be less than that. But even if it's around 5%, right? As you pointed out in your original comments, when we look at just how uh, close the voting margins were in these critical places, right, like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where if you just saw numbers of black turnout approaching what we saw in 2012, how many states would have turned to Clinton? We're thinking about a 5% difference. That can make all the difference in the world. Man, oh man. Well, it's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're deep into our conversation with Dr. Davin Phoenix about the anger gap. What motivates or doesn't motivate African-American voters to engage in uh, the political process and how do they engage? We're going to take a short break to hear from the good folks who keep our station on the air. And we'll be back after this. We are back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL. AM and FM streamed live over the internet at NHDoc radio.com. We're talking with Dr. Gavin Phoenix, a professor who has written a book called The Anger Gap, especially important at this moment. Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you for the next question. And I'll just say, I just want to make sure we get to a discussion about the VP selection. I don't want to, I don't want to go without making sure that we hit that one. Karnak, you read my mind. I, you know, we had so many things that we wanted to ask Dr. Phoenix here. I wanted to ask about hope. I wanted to ask about pride. I wanted to ask about what could the Democrats do here. But let's cut right to where Paul was suggesting, because I think there's no issue more pressing on Democrats' minds right now than the most practical, impactful decision that Joe Biden has in front of him, which is the selection of the VP candidate. And there's been, as you're well aware, a great deal of discussion in Democratic circles about should Joe Biden select a woman, we know it's going to be a woman, a woman of color. Um, should he select an African-American woman? Um, there's both uh, a school of thought that analytically that gives him the uh, best uh, advantage in the fall. And uh, full disclosure, uh, that was the reasoning that I applied at the end of our show last week in saying that my pick was uh, Senator Harris. Um, and there's also a school of thought that as Paul was laying out at the beginning of the show, you know, for goodness sakes, Joe Biden is only in this position because of the African-American voters on Super Tuesday in South Carolina. And there's no more impactful step that he owes that community than to pick uh, an African-American VP. So with all of that said, um, what do you think? Um, and if I can add another layer on, what do you make over the last week of some of the concern that's arisen about the law enforcement backgrounds of potential candidates like Senator Harris or Congresswoman Demings. Is that a complicating factor in the calculus? Sure. So I think we can um, do a bit of a catch-all in my response. 
And I know you've had arguments made on your show before about why a black woman VP or black VP is really critically important. I think where my work shows that it could be uh, impactful, certainly not a panacea, right, is that uh, African Americans are more mobilized than their white counterparts by positive emotions to take the kinds of electoral actions, hope and pride. And so I know I find some null effects for hope, but that's largely because pride is doing so much work in my models. But the key is these positive emotions and when kind of concrete, incredible hope can be powerful, especially if we kind of really uh, extract it from this idea of pride, but essentially, rather than focus on gravitating towards a message that says, look at all you have to stand to lose, right? To go back to my initial interest in this project. If you give black people collectively a credible sense of what they stand to gain, you know, something to vote for as opposed to something to vote against, they can respond maybe more than we might've expected. And so I think for that reason, a black woman on the ticket uh, can be a powerful force in engendering particularly a sense of pride. And that can be a difference maker. Now, in terms of, whether the kind of linkage to law enforcement of Harris or Demings could be a mitigating factor. I think that's a real possibility for two reasons. One, I think younger black voters are gonna be more skeptical about that record. And I think that's where the Democratic Party is really gonna be, uh, you know, urgently needing the vote. Because you know, older black voters are gonna be stalwarts, right? They're gonna be there. The question is when every vote counts, will those more on the margins voters be there, particularly younger black voters, and will they be more skeptical? I think what compounds that is, you know, when we look back at the runs of the candidates themselves, we can see they had plenty of time to counter some of those narratives around them. And VPs can often be selected relatively late in the process so that they might not have sufficient time to counter the narrative. So I think about Barack Obama in 2008, we can easily forget, you know, early on up through, we get to the Iowa, New Hampshire portion of the race, Black support was pretty staunchly still tied to Hillary Clinton, right? And so he had plenty of time to establish first and foremost, hey, I might actually have a shot at being more than a flash in the pan, right? So he won over Black people whose politics is largely characterized by the sense of pragmatism. And he was also able to, you know, make those credible gestures and connections to the community to say, oh, now this is someone I can actually be proud for. So I would really admonish if Harris or Demings was ultimately gonna be the candidate, pick them sooner rather than later. So they have plenty of time to counter the narrative. I was saying particularly for Harris, who's been on the national stage as a candidate herself, despite those very real misgivings, I think we've also seen ways in which she shines, right? Particularly when she called out Joe Biden for his uh, kind of racial blind spots in some of these debate moments. I think her ability to really have a way of words, I think is really critically important for her to be able to craft a narrative that I think contextualizes her career while also saying, look, I recognize there are things that you find problematic, but here's how I'm going to communicate my commitment, right? To not repeating some of those same actions in the past. But again, that comes with time, right? Because you can't just say that in one message, you can't just drop in on one church, have a prayer luncheon and like switch the needle uh, because people in that room are going to be convinced, but the people that aren't there, those are the ones, right, whose turnout matters. So I think that time's a really fa critical factor here. Um, so I'm struck, uh, I'm, I'm just making some connections to a question, which is the following. You talked about um, motivating uh, voters. 
uh, motivating African-American voters. And we talked about uh, pride. And we talked about hope uh, and positive, uh, mes uh, positive messages or positive actions that can, uh, that work, that can work with, with Black voters. A lot of the, uh, it seems to me when I watch television these days, the people in the streets are largely younger people. Uh, at least that's what I'm seeing on television. And traditionally, at least with white younger people, um, they don't vote the way older, older voters vote. So I'm curious about your thoughts about, uh, in particular, what will work with younger African-American voters, because we know that Black voters hold the key for Democrats. Um, we also know that uh, Democrats are, are going for, for Biden, and that, that's not a a question. So um, to channel anger into political action or inspire pride and hope to motivate turnout, what should Democrats do? What should they do now? So one thing would be, as you said in the, in the last little bit, choose an African-American VP now, get the time in so that there's, there's, there's a, a, good, a good amount of time to make those arguments. Are there policy steps that you would want to see? I mean, Nancy Pelosi um, right now uh, is a significant leader and has the policy levers at her disposal. So are there policy? Is there action? And what about rhetoric? Because going back to your earlier answer, what struck me is, you know, uh, and Matt and I have talked about this a lot, Republicans have always been good at emotionally resonant messaging. And Democrats have never been any good at it. Uh, we think we're smart, so we leave it there. It's all in the head, not in the heart. We don't know how to do it. But what I'm hearing from you is that let's own who we are as Democrats. And it may not be one message, but we need to craft a series of different emotionally resonant messages that may have an underlying foundation, but that are pitched properly to the different folks who make up the Democratic coalition. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but you're a smart guy and I know you can. <laughs> sure, well, you know, fortunately I've been pressed to think about these critical issues very deeply. So I think I do have some answers for you. I'll start with the rhetoric. So I think it's important to note that you can engender pride, right, without exclusively positive messaging, right? So let's consider the kinds of unrest that we're seeing uh, throughout the US. And for me, I think I can see a direct connection between the unrest that I can see on a much smaller scale on college campuses, right? As students can feel that they are getting uh, less bang for their buck than ever before, right? Tuitions are going up exponentially and they're feeling like maybe their resources are going down. And so I think one of the ways in which my students can feel pride is when someone in a position of authority takes the time to make explicitly clear, I hear you, I see you, and I validate what you're going through, right? And so we can think about the kind of anguish that comes about when you feel like you're um, kind of just yelling at a brick wall, right? We want these changes, but the people in power simply don't get it, right? So think about how powerful democratic messaging can be to speak to people that feel so disaffected and not just use the same kind of talking points, but really articulate the ways in which they get it. So I know, um, you know, Joe Biden's speech this past week, he talked a lot about the need to have difficult conversations that we've been shying away from. And I think a lot of disaffected people across race, but particularly African-Americans, right? And those kind of in solidarity with African-Americans are like, well, we've been having these conversations for a long time. And those conversations have led to concrete policy platforms and recommendations. 
Like, we don't need to have the talk, right? We want to see action. And so I think that's a way in which the rhetoric needs to shift by kind of centering not just the need for white people that are disconnected from these issues and saying, yeah, we need to kind of talk about it. It's like censoring the people that are at the epicenter and saying, you've been talking, it's time for us to listen and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We can't do this, but we can kind of keep this on the you know back burner. I think that's a shift that, again, is subtle, but can be really uh, significant in the effect that it engenders. Um, and so I think that flows into the policy. And so one thing I would like for the Democratic Party to do is recognize that when you say Black Lives Matter, it's not just a slogan, it's actually a platform, right? So there's a Black Lives Matter platform. And coincidentally, uh, in a few months, right, the Democratic Party will be writing its platform. Why don't you substantially and like, you know, symbolically incorporate some of the language and ideas from that Black Lives Matter platform into the party platform, right? Why don't you bring some of the architects of that platform who are not just community organizers at the street level, but there's people in the world of policymaking, there's academics, there's researchers, right, that have crafted that. Invite them to the figurative table, right? Give them prominent places within the Democratic Party uh, convention uh, to break bread and to exchange ideas. Uh, when you talk about policies, right, one of the few places in which Democratic and Republican regimes, particularly at the state and local level, look so similar is in the area of policing, right? And so Democrats can make a credible message by saying, well, we're not going to do the exact same thing that Republican uh, counterparts do with policing, right? We're really going to not just institute reforms that can easily be flouted, we're going to really try to reimagine in substantial ways how to do community policing. We're gonna reimagine in substantive ways how the bail system works, reimagine how the prison system works, and we're gonna build on some of the momentum that's been built. What have we seen in recent years? huge, huge efforts that usually start at the state level, then get momentum of decriminalization, right? Of decarceration, of ending uh, the money flowing to private prisons, right? And so what's the kind of grounds of support, right? It's the same activists on the ground that have been pushing for this, that have been building the infrastructure for this, that are taking to the streets in this moment. So what further concrete uh, meaningful reforms can be made. These need to be core elements of the Democratic's, uh, Democratic Party's uh, talking points and platform going forward. And lastly, in terms of policy, if we're talking about motivating and mobilizing Black voters, the Democratic Party needs to be very explicitly aware of all the ways in which Black enfranchisement has been challenged right, across states over the years and have a committed uh, national focus on working with African Americans to override or at least navigate those. So we can talk about the restrictions faced or the higher burden, I should say, faced by uh, people of color, uh, immigrants, lower folks, low-income folks from voter ID requirements, but also not just that, right? Restriction on registration. So people are saying you used to be able to register on the same day, now we're making it two months earlier, right? The restrictions and the assault on voting by mail, which is critically important, not only because it increases turnout substantially amongst people of color, and young folks, but also because in this era of COVID, people are gonna be much more comfortable casting their ballot in that way, right? So let's also think about the specific health crisis in this moment that has a disproportionate toll on the people most likely to want to vote Democrat if they see that their, their vote matters. Let's also think about the micro-targeting efforts against African-Americans from foreign influencers, right? How that was widespread in 2016 and all indicators are, it continues to be widespread in 2020. What's the democratic strategy for that? Right? So I think we can see really clear ways in which the Democratic Party can, quote unquote, put its money where its mouth is. 
And I think those can be really meaningful signals to Black people that uh, can be on the fence about whether their vote matters. So this is off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Uh, Dr. Phoenix, uh, this has been an important uh, and uh, meaningful conversation. Um, I found um, not only are you brilliant, but you moved me deeply. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Uh, folks, it's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXL. We'll be back after this for a very brief wrap-up. Stay with us. We're back. It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM Street Live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. Well, Matt Robeson, that was uh, a very important conversation with Dr. Davin Phoenix. I will say, and it's not just because of what's going on in the country now, but it is increasingly clear to me that uh, the way the Dem Democrats deal with uh, the deep, stain of systemic racism uh, will be the key, not just to the election of 2020, but to the future of the United States. Here, here, and I hope that uh, they all listen to this episode and uh, I commend the book, The Anger Gap to all of our listeners. And Matt, uh, I'm sure that uh, we're going to be reading you on thealternet.org. And Matt Robeson is also a blogger at amoreperfectunionforum.com. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL. Folks, we'll be back next week with another exciting episode. Thanks to our listeners. Thanks to our sponsors. We'll see you next week.